what is the end result of David Gordon Green's Master Trilogy? He's shaking, ladies and gentlemen. Not bad, huh? Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> my. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 38 of Plot Devices. It's still spooky season. This is, I think, the last episode of spooky season, because next episode we're going to be in November. It's ended too soon. This is the problem of doing bi-weekly shows, but, you know, we're here, we're doing it for you. I am one of your hosts, Brandon King, alongside my co-host, Noah Guzman. Noah, are you sad that Halloween is so close? Uh, you know, hard to be sad when Phoenix Pride is ongoing, baby! Yeah! Um, happy Pride to all of our proud listeners. I had a great time at the Phoenix Pride Festival just this past weekend, so not a lot of um, spookiness, you know, looming in the air these days. Let's jump right in. We have five new releases coming later in the show today. Obviously, Halloween ends. We'll get to Black Adam. We'll get to a couple other things. For now, we're going to actually get into two big topics in the world of streaming uh, that we wanted to kind of look them in, so to speak. First off, over at Netflix, uh, we've been talking for a while between, you know, Stranger Things, Ozark, a couple other things about whether or not Netflix would actually stick to that age-old binge format that they became so known for. Well, according to their quarter three sales letter, they're sticking to it for a while. Uh, this is from that sales letter, courtesy of, I believe, Variety's report. Quote, we think our bingeable release model helps drive sustainable engagement, especially for newer titles. This enables viewers to lose themselves in the stories they love. We believe the ability for our members to immerse themselves in a story from start to finish increases their enjoyment, but also their likelihood to tell their friends, which then means more people watch, join, and stay with Netflix. Now, notably, as we mentioned, this comes after certain series like Stranger Things and Ozark had breaking off into blocks for release schedules, as well as the recently announced Netflix with ads payment program, which we actually haven't talked about on the show yet. That's going to be debuting next month with a $7 per month plan for 30 to 60 second ads, as opposed to the normal uh, $10 a month plan, which is fascinating because Netflix has always been very adverse to that. There was a whole hubbub like really early on in the pandemic about whether or not they do that. Apparently, this is going to be part of that plan. The other part of this is over at Peacock, which we're going to be talking about multiple times in this episode, actually. Halloween ends, which Noah will be reviewing later on. After that film opened to less than expected box office success, uh, Christopher Landon, who is the director behind the Catherine Newton, Vince Vaughn, quote, cult classic horror film. It's only two years old. Uh, if any of you saw Freaky, that came out uh, a couple years ago. And he is not happy about Universal and Peacock's day of streaming release. He had this to say in a Twitter thread that I have abridged for you guys. It's a bit lengthy and contains a bit of profanity. We try to be friendly, family friendly on the show, but I try to abridge it as much as I could. Quote, the day and date release strategy for Halloween ends. Stop doing this, please. It doesn't work. Studios stop gambling with filmmakers and their movies to try and prop up your fledgling streaming services. This happened to me on Freaky, and it destroyed us. I begged the studio not to do this. Either circle the wagons and protect it for theatrical, or just go all in on streaming. Don't split hairs. Honor the sanctity of theatrical experience. Uh, and quote on that thread. Halloween ends for context made 40 million opening weekend. It was supposed to make somewhere around 50 to 55 million in the week since. It has made 70 million at the global box office that's making back its budget, uh, with Universal allegedly touting it as the most watched film or series over their platform over a two day period. I believe also beating Halloween Kills, which I think was the previous record holder on that. Noah, there's a lot on this to break down, but it essentially kind of boils down to two big questions. Uh, not really in terms of Halloween specifically, but we'll get into that later on. Uh, number one, where is the binge model going? Where is the week-to-week -week release model going? And this among the people that you've talked to in the entertainment industry and just your circle of just casual um, Netflix viewers as well. And, and in regards to Peacock and HBO Max and that whole debacle, where do we stand as far as, you know, theaters are making business again, you know, streaming services are becoming more defined in our media landscape. 
Where do you see the day-in, day-out release dates going for theatrical exclusives? This is a familiar topic, right? So to be returning to it, I'm not surprised. Uh, for the director of Freaky to come out of, uh, it's just hilarious for me that he came out like during spooky season to really come out and, um, you know, defend this, defend this theatrical experience. Um, speaking on the, uh, I mean, I wasn't sure of the box office when Freaky dropped. I kind of watched it after the buzz about it kind of died down. Um, but it's, it's worth focusing on because I think that while some of us take the angle, I mean, Brandon, you and I often talk about the accessibility angle, like how uh, amazing it is that those at home who um, are not prepared to return to theaters or are unable to return to theaters uh, still have that theatrical quote unquote experience, or at least that um, timely experience of having this content available to them at the same time as everyone else uh, to, to look at it, from that angle, I, I think that this is a kind of a moot point. Like I, I praise the accessibility position a whole lot more than where these people in the industry stand when it comes to making money, like all of their uh, box office results. I don't make my money from that. So of course I'm going to feel different to that. Um, I, for one, am so pleased when I see that a title is going to be available uh, on streaming as well as in theaters, because depending on the title, depending on my interest and depending upon like what kind of experience I want to have, I know that I that that option is now available to me before it was sorry, this is locked in. And if you wanted to get the grander experience, you can go to the IMAX feature, which is like close to $20, or you can pay $10 for like a matinee or something like that. That used to be the only choice I had to make. But now... I so much more prefer the the option being available to these uh, audiences, whether it's at home or in theaters. Uh, but do you see, do you sympathize with the position of those in the industry who have said that their films have kind of tanked because of this model? I do. And I think there's certainly something to be said about, especially with, you know, the whole HBO Max debacle about, you know, exclusive. And we just heard recently that Netflix is taking a couple of their earlier projects, things like Hemlock Grove and um, His House, like a couple of their exclusive properties off of the streaming service, but without like physical releases or shifting over to other media. And that can be really concerning to you as a creative to know that this thing that I put, you know, a year, two years, maybe even more into is being taken away from this thing that was told for exclusivity purposes and then isn't. I think that kind of goes back to the theatrical angle of it as well, which is like, I agree with you. I like having options. I liked you know, I, I didn't love it at first, but I warmed to the idea of like the HBO Max simultaneous release. I'm kind of warming to the idea of day and releases because there is that great sense of options there. We are still very much in a pandemic. There's obviously been a lot of talk about winter surges and maybe that will drive certain audiences out of movies. There's obviously still the financial accessibility of movies. They are still fairly expensive to go to, you know, all things considered. So I think there's a lot of details within that that I do sympathize with Landon's point of view. At the same time, there is also the semblance of studios are going to do what studios are going to do. Like every studio in town, basically at this point, has put in millions into their streaming services to prop that up as the next age of media accessibility. And you and I are thinking, are thinking are both on the same page of like that accessibility needs to continue for more art. The problem is securing that and securing what theatrical exclusives need to be. And I don't think, at least for me, like according to, you know, Landon and a couple other people who have kind of spoken out about this, it doesn't seem like studios are really intent to do that. They're kind of the idea of like, if it'll bring eyes to our streaming services, great. If it'll bring us to theaters, cool. But like, can it also bring eyes to us? And I think that's kind of like the backdoor sleaziness of the whole thing, if that makes any sense. I'm hoping that can be worked out more than anything. I do like day and uh, day and release options, but I think there needs to be, I, I, I sympathize with Landon's approach to being like, there needs to be walls for theatrical bombastic experience. 
we'll talk about Black Adam in it later, but I think that kind of goes to the point of giving people that experience and allowing that to be an option. I wanted to look at the Netflix release model and talk about the hype that was behind the two popular shows that you mentioned, Stranger Things and Ozark. I feel like a show like House of the Dragon, which exists on HBO Max, which is running for 10 episodes, each an hour long, although there is news that it the finale did leak. Um, <laughs> I've seen that on Twitter. Uh, I wanted to just speak on how the socials are so engaged and my circle of friends, my family, we are talking to each other every week, checking in on our reactions. Some of my coworkers as well, being so involved in this industry, um, have notes when we meet on Monday saying, hey, how did you enjoy that show? And it's, it is top of mind at the top of every week. And I think that that's very important for the success of these shows. I mean, yes, it is a Game of Thrones spinoff. So it, it like it carries over the masses who rallied behind that show. Uh, same thing can be said about Stranger Things, about Ozark. It's just we're looking we, we're kind of hyper focusing in on these big titles for for defend for defense of this model. Whereas we would need to examine something smaller and maybe with a smaller following just to understand like whether whether this works for the average viewer or not because uh, stranger things i mean we're on season four ozark i believe that that's in its i'm sorry i don't remember the season it might be like four or five and then house of the dragon that's a game of thrones spinoff so there's going to be millions tuning in uh i wonder if those stand as strong enough defenses for their models but i mean it's just something to consider well it's also like going back to the theatrical thing like there's a big difference when you're talking about series because there is no theater for TV shows. So there's the idea that series only have either their platforms or their channels to go to. And I, I think, I don't remember how we essentially talked about this when Stranger Things came out. I liked the kind of blocked model. I I wish they had done it more separately. I wish it had been like four episodes and four episodes. I didn't like the whole, you know, two episodes that are over two hours type deal. I didn't care for that. But I think the idea is there. And like you said, Stranger Things, Ozark, these shows have audiences who will follow them no matter what the styling is. I don't necessarily think that, like in the uh, in the article, Netflix references, um, oh God, what was it? Squid Game. And I think they kind of reference the idea like people wouldn't choose a Squid Game if they couldn't binge it. I'm like, I don't know about that. I think Squid Game is very much a show you could have done week by week. And that was a show that didn't have, you know, necessarily backlogged, you know, social uh, appreciation behind it or social namesake, I should say. And so it becomes kind of this interesting question of, could Netflix, who's been without many exceptions, being like the stark baron of like, we're doing, you know, uh, binge format, we're sticking to our guns on that. I think they're going to try and stick to this for the time being because Netflix has usually proven to be fairly stubborn in the past. We're actually going to move on to our second topic, which kind of pertains to all this. It involves Death on the Nile, which is a movie that got a theatrical release. It didn't do great in theaters. And then it made absolute bank on VOD and streaming services. So it kind of pertains to all that. But we're not talking about Death on the Nile. We're talking about the third Hercule Poirot movie. So for all of you Agatha Christie fans, you're getting another one. We are getting A Haunting in Venice. This is, of course, based off uh, Halloween, which is a kind of lesser known Agatha Christie Poirot novel. Uh, Poirot, once again played by Brano, who was also directing as well, will attend a seance again in post-World War II Venice, where a guest is murdered and he must once again bring the killer to justice. Also announced, and probably even more exciting, is the ensemble that is going to surround Brana. We have Jamie Dornan, Tina Fey, Michelle Yeoh, alongside Belfast's Jude Hill, The School for Good and Evil's Ali Khan, American Horror Stories' Kyle Allen, and Killing Eve's Camille Katin, alongside some of the other cast. This is a statement from Brana regarding the film, quote, 
Based on a complex, little-known tale of mystery set at Halloween in a pictorially ravishing city, it is an amazing opportunity for us as filmmakers, and we are relishing the chance to deliver something truly spine-chilling for our loyal movie audiences. A Haunting in Venice is expected next year in theaters. No, we didn't get a chance to review Death on the Nile, and this isn't necessarily a chance to do either that or the other, but are you excited for more Poirot tales? And nonetheless, one that's coming this soon. My gosh, very soon are we going to be in the war between uh, Ryan Johnson's Knives Out and its ah. sequels at Glass Onion and uh, the Hercule Poirot films, now A Haunting in Venice. I, even the titles. I mean, these th- this concept of whodunit, they pull me in. And now we're getting a third. I'm not going to lie. I am kind of surprised that th- we are continuing to get these films because of your mention of like them kind of underperforming at their major release date, but then... I guess, gaining a following after the fact. Um, Tina Fey being attached, Michelle Yeoh, I just, I, I know something great is going to be coming. They're the, they're the two names um, that will be part of a long list that's sure to excite so many. Uh, I'm familiar with Camille Cotton because I did see her character in that uh, in, in that season of Killing Eve. I believe it was season three um, alongside uh, Jodie Comer's uh, I almost wanted to call her Colette, but scratch that. I'm not sure what her name is. But that being said, World War II, Halloween time, need you say more? This is a perfect setup for a whodunit that is going to be, I would say, like, it's going to take a dark shift. They've always been about murder, these, you know, movies based on those Agatha Christie novels. But choosing this type of environment, this atmosphere, I think will deliver a whole new different story. I wasn't as amped up and like racing to theaters for death on the Nile, but a haunting in Venice, I'm sure I wouldn't want to miss. And I would probably find myself in a theater seat uh, ready to take in that film. I definitely would. I'm a pretty fervent defender of murder on the Orient express. I really like that movie. Uh, Death on the Nile was not as good, but I still really appreciate what Brana could bring to that role and bring to that kind of, stylistic approach to Christie's work. I, I also would love to see just a, like you mentioned, kind of a sit down between Ryan Johnson and Kenneth Branagh, just trying to see who can write the most clever mystery based on Christie's kind of archetypes. That'd be kind of funny. Um, and even beyond that, like just the, just the idea of post-World War II uh, Italy in general, like at least from a historical perspective, and this is me getting into nerdy territory, we hear a lot about like the rebuilding of Germany after World War II. We hear about like the Americanization of Japan after World War II. We don't really hear about that in Italy. And I'd be curious to see how they kind of tackle that. You know, these movies are not historical fiction, but I'm curious how they tie that time period into it. Also, after Barb and Star, you know, give me more Jamie Dornan and everything. I think it's fantastic. You really handle this. Tina Fey is a bit of a question mark because she hasn't really done drama per se. Uh, but yeah, uh, uh, Michelle Yeoh, same way. Uh, Jude Hill is a, is a complete fine. Like these ensembles really get me excited of just like, who can they get into this and what kind of archetype are they going to be embodying? The script is obviously going to be the big definer, but count me on board. Thank you all for joining our news portion of today's plot device episode. We are now transitioning over to our quick hit portion of the show. Yes, we got our phones recording our faces so that we can post them onto our social feeds so that you get your quick hits with a visual medium as well. So if you aren't familiar with the quick hit section, hello, welcome to our show. We've been doing this for like a handful of episodes. I think it's like kind of the thing that we're going to continue doing. But in the quick hit portion of the show, me, myself and Brandon take one minute each or as close as we can to deliver a truncated story that is about the industry. Um, I will kick off our quick hits for today in three, two, one. 
Hello, everyone. I am presenting news today about the Spencer director, Pablo Lorraine, and the next biopic that he will be um, directing. This time, it is about a soprano, world-renowned opera singer, Maria Callas, and he has the attached star, Angelina Jolie. Yes, Eternals. Yes, Tomb Raider, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. The list goes on. Uh, Pablo Lorraine will be working with the same writer from Spencer, uh, Stephen Knight, as well as uh, his creative partner and brother, Juan de Dios Lorraine. Uh, the film is going to be sending around the opera singer in her late life, as in the 70s, she led a very fascinating, tragic story. And here's a quote from the Deadline article that presents this information, and it is from Lorraine. Having the chance to combine my two most deep and personal passions, cinema and opera, has been a long-awaited dream. Dream. To do this with Angelina, a supremely brave and curious artist, is a fascinating opportunity, a true gift. I myself am a big Angelina fan, and I'm excited to see her return to the big screen after her time with Those Who Wish Me Dead. That's time, and it's going to be such an exciting new biopic. Uh, this time, I will be excited to witness a Lorraine biopic for the first time. Brandon, as you are more familiar with the with the Lorraine titles, uh, does this kind of perk your ears up for a new biopic from the director? 1000%. Like Spencer made my top 10 of last year. Angelina Jolie is becoming an incredibly fascinating performer in her later years. And like Lorraine is just, he knows how to make pictures of really complicated women at really poignant times in their lives. Just give me this. It sounds fascinating. Over to you for your quick hit. In three, two. So for four years of waiting, Michael B. Jordan's Creed movies are back for fans. For the first official trailer of Creed 3 officially released this past week, the trailer shows us the continuing career of Adani. Adani, Adonis Donnie Creed, played by Michael B. Jordan, five years after the events of Creed 2, now as a husband to Tessa Thompson's Bianca, and starting a family of his own. That is, until his former friend Damian Dame Anderson, played by Loki and Lovecraft Country's Jonathan Majors, returns to his life after a long time sentence in prison. By looks of the trailer, we're going to be getting a conflict between Donnie and Damian, but the latter believing that Donnie has lived the life that Damian deserves, with Donnie continuing to solidify his legacy as more than just the son of the late Apollo Creed, as well as just, again, forming a family of his own. Notably, this will be Jordan's debut as a director and the first Rocky movie not to star Sylvester Stallone who will be who will be still on as a producer uh, alongside Ryan Coogler who directed the first film. Uh, Felicia Rashad, Florian Mantineau and uh, Wood Harris will all be reprising their roles from previous th Creed movies. Creed 3 is set for the aptly named release date of March 3rd, 2023. Noah, this is going to be a fight. We have Jonathan Majors and Michael B. Jordan. Jordan's directorial debut. Have you seen the photos of these men, they're jacked. They are swollen. I can't wait to see them get in the ring. Can't wait to see the emotions that they pack behind every single punch. Both of them very strong performers. Uh, I do need to make it out to see Creed 2, uh, but I am a fan of the first Creed. Um, I want to I want to know really what happens with Stallone's character because how are you going to have Creed 3 and not have Stallone, huh? But the fact that he's producing just shows that um, I would hope that his heart is still in the franchise and that he's connected in some way. Uh, my mom's the biggest Rocky fan, so, you know, it's it's exciting to still hear about that Balboa man. Creed 2 made me cry. So anything this movie does is going to be in my good graces. And Jonathan Majors, between this and the MCU, is just on a hot streak recently. Like, he is going to be a superstar given the next year or so. That's going to wrap today's quick hit portion of the show. If you haven't given us a follow already, go ahead and check out our pages on Instagram, Twitter, Plot Devices Podcast, as well as our TikTok page at Plot Devices Podcast. Uh, we hope to get some quick hit visuals out there for you very soon so that you can put some faces to the voices, to the sounds that you've been hearing in your ears. We are transitioning now to the movie review portion of the show. Uh, we got two solo reviews in this section. 
my co-host Brandon King will take it away with a review for Tar. So Tar is the latest movie from Todd Field, who has not directed a movie in 16 years. His last movie was uh, Little Children with uh, Patrick Wilson, Jackie O'Haley. I believe Kate Winslet got nominated for an Oscar for that. But needless to say, he's been very acclaimed for his work with his actors and actresses for getting them all the awards nominations. And this looks to be no different because if you've heard anything about the Best Actress race recently, it was that Michelle Yeoh was pretty much a lock. And then Kate Blanchett came in for this. We follow the fictional Lydia Tarr in this movie, played by Blanchett, who is basically the modern composer to end all modern composers. She is an EGOT winner. You know, she's getting profiled in The New Yorker at the beginning of the film. She's uh, just accepted a new position at the Berlin Philharmonic, as well as her concertmaster and wife, uh, Sharon, played by uh, Nina Haas. Essentially, the movie kind of delves into two different storylines. We get the idea of Lydia's own inner turmoil. She's taken on a apprentice. That's the kind way of looking at it. Uh, it's a Russian cellist uh, named Olga, played by Sylvie Cower, which is her. This is actually her acting debut, and she's fantastic in this. And it slowly but surely delves into something a bit more toxic. We see kind of the borderline grooming pattern that she goes into with Olga. We see her mistreatment of her assistant, played by Nomi uh, Merlet from Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which is great to see her in there. We see kind of the toxic relationship she has with her um, one of her investor with one of her investors, played by Mark Strong. We pause on this for a minute, uh, and the whole movie is just this really fascinating character study of Lydia as a genius, a world-renowned composer and artist who is also, as a person, really messy and borders on a lot of really despicable behavior that just escalates and escalates and escalates as we start to see the progression through the movie. Like I said, this is Todd Field's first movie in 16 years, and the first 10 minutes, it goes a bit slow into getting into really getting you invested. Literally, the first piece is, it's just Adam Gopnik from The New Yorker interviewing Lydia Tarr about all her accomplishments and really setting us up as like, this is a person to be revered and idolized and examined. And... As the movie goes on, I really didn't care about that first 10 minutes that much because the rest of the movie is just so fascinating. Like, bearing the lead, I love this movie, and I love it for a couple of reasons. Number one is you start and end with Kate Blanchett. It's easily one of her top three performances ever. She just embodies so much of the witticisms and the dynamics of Lydia as a character. She's just really charismatic, and she's really insightful, and you can tell that she's a genius about all of these things. Like, it's not just that initial interview, like, the way she writes and the way she composes, you see that internal kind of process. And as a musician myself, I kind of identify with some of the sense of like, oh, you get writer's block for like several hours at a time, and then you'll hear a melody from a ringtone or from a car outside, and that will, you know, kind of click for something like that. But again, like Blanchette is just owning the entire screen, and like she has to be on screen the entire time. But Nita Haas, as we mentioned, is probably the hidden heart of this movie. She really gets to bring out Lydia's softer side her more conflicted angles about like is the thing i'm doing right is the thing that i'm doing really worth getting to the top for um there's a lot of like intermingling secession style politics about like who gets to be the assistant composer uh Liddy's assistant again no nomi merlon is fantastic in this she's kind of vying for that assistant composer position and Lydia is kind of playing every side she's playing the investor she's playing francesca she's kind of playing everything and for a while you kind of think to yourself oh, this is just becoming this, you know, internal fireball ready to combust. But it's actually this really compelling examination of a woman who is just so invested in herself and her own journey and just her sense of getting there that it becomes thing I wouldn't say you could root for, but that you empathize a little bit with. You get the idea of that sense of ambition and going to the top to the point where when the movie ends the way it does and when those threads really converge, you don't feel sorry for her, but you get it from that level. And I think that's kind of the way that Field is approaching this. Either way, it's this phenomenally crafted movie. It's shot brilliantly. 
The only thing I will say about it is that there was a review I was watching early on that compared this like, this is a movie that features every word in the English dictionary. And it, it kind of is. I could tell that if you are listening to the script and listening to the dialogue, there are going to be points where if you're not completely locked into Lydia as a character or into that kind of high art sense that the European setting is uh, going towards, you're not going to be really invested in it. It's like two and a half hours and it can get grating at times. I, on the other hand, was completely fascinated in the character, so I really never lost track of that. The other thing I'll say, the ending is a choice. Uh, it's been something I've kind of heard. I've heard good things about it, and I can't agree. Uh, I don't think the last 10 minutes are really needed. There was, It's one of those movies where there's a point where you think, that's a perfect ending. And then there's another point where you go, oh, that's tying into this thing at the very beginning. That's going to be the ending. And then it ends like three minutes later on something completely random, at least in my mind. I've heard reasonings for it, but I don't really get, I don't really identify with it or really connected with it, but it doesn't diminish the movie at all. I think this is brilliant. It's messy. It's complex, but it is absolutely fascinating. Again, if you want to watch one of the best performances of the year, Kate Blanchett owns this entirely. The supporting cast are fantastic. Todd Fields directing never loses that sense of like, this is not a character you root for. This is a character you examine about yourself and the mess behind society and the mess that made to create them. And again, like just the idea of ambition and where that can lead someone, especially in, you know, art forms as the movie kind of goes into that have been so white Eurocentric for so long and kind of what that means for art and culture and how we view them. I thought this was brilliant. Kate Planchet is a star who has defining roles throughout her career. Do you find this to be another? Field makes it a notion of like, you cannot take your eyes off of her even for a second, even if you want to. Like, even if you're seeing, you know, this thing where you're like, why are you doing that? You have no reason to do that. She really just lets you in and kind of lets you examine the one small reasoning for it. And you find yourself going, okay, I get it. But like, come on. Do you suspect a nomination for her performance in this? I will say this much. You and I have both been, I think, you know, Michelle Yeoh fanboys from the first day. Like, she should still win for everything everywhere all at once. But if she has any competition, it's probably going to be Michelle Williams for the favorite ones because they're doing the stupid supporting actor switched up nonsense. But if there's anyone else, it's going to be Kate Blanchett. She is the one to watch for award season. And with that being said, we're going to move on to our second solo review of the day. I'm going to be turning over to my co-host, Noah Guzman. Last year, we talked about Halloween Kills. My we, I mean him. And it wasn't great. So I've heard not so great things about Halloween ends, and I'm hoping that Noah can enlighten us a little bit on what that actually means. So Noah, does Halloween end tonight? Is evil over? What is the what is the end result of David Gordon Green's master trilogy? He's shaking, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, <laughs> oh <laughs> my God! Okay, so I wanted to just state that I don't hate the Halloween films. I have watched the original. I admire it. I like seeing Jamie Lee Curtis in, as the final girl and her first instance as Laurie Strode and what it meant to be like a survivor by the end of that film. Did I follow up with many of its sequels? Can't say that I have. But the character of Michael Myers was instilled in my memory, as I'm sure it is in, in plenty of yours, because of his ferocity, because of his um, determination, his relentlessness, the shape always at a walking speed, always with a kitchen knife in hand. Hmm. Oh, You're thinking Jason, my friend. It is. Yes. I thought that you both used Jason Voorhees. So I'm going to jump right into this review for Halloween ends. It's coming from a place of love. I love, I love horror. I like Halloween. You know, I'm more of a Christmas guy. I mean, Mariah Carey, I can't wait for 
your song to be at the top of the billboards again. Anyways, <laughs> Halloween Ends is the third film, as Brandon states, from the David Gordon Green trilogy. Halloween in 2018, Halloween Kills released in 2021. Now we have the finale, what I imagine to be Revenge of the Sith for the Halloween trilogy. Okay, so what is this movie? This movie is allegedly the final nail in the coffin for this trilogy of the Halloween franchise reboot. I am just hoping they put this thing to death. The big question for Halloween Kills, the tagline, everybody's suspicions was, evil dies tonight. Let me tell you, Michael did not die. He lived because he and Lori have the stamina, the regenerative abilities, all the same as Wolverine or Rambo, maybe a combination of the two. I'll let you experience it for yourself. What does this movie involve? So at the end of Halloween Kills, Michael is apprehended only to then escape. Uh, spoiler alert, he kills Lori's daughter. We end Halloween Kills with a tragedy. Halloween Ends opens up with a time jump of four years. Lori is living with her granddaughter, Allison, and Michael is kind of an, an old, an old, I can't say urban legend, just an old story now. Everybody's working on trying to forget uh, some of his victims who have escaped are working on healing, uh, but a lot of the blame is placed on Lori for being the kind of the alarming presence that brings Michael back again and again. Uh, at the top of the film, Lori is writing a book, just like Sidney Prescott, just like Gail Weathers about their time in Westboro. But this time, Lori is talking about her time in Haddonfield, Illinois, where she faced off against Michael Myers, not once, twice, three, fours, multiple, so many times. Um, the reason why I make the comparison to The Revenge of the Sith is because at the very top of this film, we are introduced to a character named Corey. And what Corey signs on for at the, at the beginning is an evening of babysitting, only for it to end in absolute tragedy. I won't share the explicit details, but let me tell you, it is shocking as hell. So is much of this movie, for better or for worse. Much of the reason people go to see the Halloween movies is because of the <laughs> jarring nature, the imaginativeness of all of Michael's kills. Um, here, that is no different. I think that while Michael's kill count is significantly lower than it is in the past films, we still get a variety of killings, a variety of spooks and scares that are, you know, very familiar in like nature, but the actual way that Michael is ending these lives, it's, it surprises me that they're, that, you know, <laughs> they're not just, um, throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks. It seems like they actually put some thought into like how to shock audiences and how to make them really like squirm in their seats. There was one kill in particular that happens to somebody in a radio station that I, at its peak, I had to look away because even me, I was like, I don't want to see this. I, I know what's going to happen and I don't think I'll get a lot from it. Back to Corey, my apologies. So he signs up for a babysitting gig only for it to end in tragedy. And that really traumatizes him for the rest of his life. Um, he gets teased by the community uh, from all but one person in Allison's in Allison, who is Lori's granddaughter. Uh, they both meet because uh, she dresses one of his wounds after he is uh, bullied and just assaulted out outside of a gas station where he meets Lori. Um, but anyways, Corey and Allison really develop this bond that will turn into a romantic connection. However, Corey has really added a divide for his personality with whether he is going to, you know, fall victim to all of this 
guilt that has been plaguing him since this accident uh, from all of the harassment that he has been uh, enduring from the community? Or does he want to just say, you know, F it to everything and take off with Allison into the sunset? So there is a high point in the in the first half of this film where Corey actually comes face to face with Michael Myers. Yes, it is discovered that Michael is actually hiding like in the sewage or in the um like these tunnels that that lie beneath the city. And Corey is one of the few people who run into and have an, an encounter with Michael and he lets them go. Michael releases Corey and out into the world he goes because this movie wants to paint a picture that Michael saw something of himself in Corey. So when I say Revenge of the Sith, I hope you know what I'm getting. Corey then proceeds to commit the majority of the killings in this film. And the big question for Lori is, how can I stop my granddaughter, Allison, from losing herself to this infatuation with a copy of her nightmare, which is Michael Myers, her boogeyman, you know, how can I protect Allison from Corey as he loses himself further and further into the dark side of Michael Myers' mask? Um, Lori, she was a Rambo in the first Halloween. She's Rambo again in Halloween Kills. And here she returns to, again, face off against Michael Myers. Uh, it's unfortunate to say that these plot points, they are the they are what this film has, and then it runs with it. There aren't many standoffs between Laurie and Michael Myers, although that's what it feels like this trilogy has been leading up to since that 2018 release. What was happening in Halloween Kills, like, oh, it's it's Halloween night. Uh, Michael's going to go out and just massacre everyone. And that felt very focused because it, it was kind of, it, it's, oh my gosh, I'm going to make the Star Wars comparison again. It's The Empire Strikes Back. Michael is legit taking out his rage and everything on those people who thought that they could stand against him. Well, now in Halloween Ends, why now is he acting as mentor to a new killer in this community, a new serial killer? And Corey kind of becomes the focus of this film. Again, it makes the mistake of losing Laurie as the main character and transitioning audiences to instead focus on a newly introduced character that we don't know, we don't have many attachment to. We see them kill early on, and now we're just wondering... Where can we go with this? Um, I wish I had more to say about this film. Uh, just to not beat the point to death, <laughs> I will say that the kills are creative enough for me to remain engaged when Michael's on screen. However, when he's off, I kind of am asking myself, how does this film stand as a wrap-up to the trilogy? Because I'm not getting that. I'm not understanding why this is Halloween ends. I'm not understanding what has affected Lori to now realize that this is where she ends her nightmare. This film has so many kills. I would be surprised if you count yourself safe among them, just in case it bores you to death. I'm going to give this film an honest rating of two out of 10. I probably will not return to this franchise, save for the 2018 reboot. For longtime fans of the franchise, you might be disappointed. I'll admit I'm coming from, point, from a place of ignorance, but it sounds like it's a half-decent horror movie in the midst of a bad Halloween movie. Is that at least somewhat accurate? You know what? Yes, it makes the mistake of placing itself in the Halloween universe because, unfortunately, Laurie's connection to this to these new characters is not necessary. Like, it, it's not necessary for Laurie Strode to exist in this story. And I'm not even sure if Michael Myers needs to exist in this story. But do we have a... Uh, you know, a standalone film about a 
a traumatized individual who may lose themselves to their, to their psychotic tendencies or like run off and pursue their heart instead. Uh, you know, I think we're halfway there. The movie's two hours long. Um, if you sit through it and you have differing opinions, I invite you to collaborate with us and message us, DM us, uh, contact us on socials. But uh, from my own experience, yeah, I unfortunately, I didn't have too much of a good time with Halloween Kills or Halloween Ends. And I will say Halloween Kills was a better movie. And I never thought I'd put that above anything else. Picking up the energy, we are going to instead spin on our topic of spooky and instead go over to kind of like a family-friendly horror title. This is Werewolf by Night. It is a Disney Plus special. You know, not a movie, not not a TV show, standing at around 55 minutes. I should say, some of you are probably going to say, this and the next thing we're talking about aren't technically movies. Why are you talking about the movie section? We made the executive decision. We are calling the movies. They are over 90 minutes long, at least for the most part. They're around there. We wanted to call it that. All right, Brandon, uh, can you go ahead and share with our listeners what the heck Werewolf by Night is even about? So this is a Marvel Studios special presentation. It's the first one uh, of that. We've heard rumors that they're working on a couple of others. This is based on the Jack Russell Werewolf by Night character who popped up in comics as early as the, I think it's the 1972, 1973, something like that. Uh, but he's been along for a long time. He's part of uh, the whole horror sect of Marvel comics is something that doesn't really get addressed that often until we got Michael Giacchino. Yeah, like the film composer beyond, you know, Rogue One and Jurassic Park and Spider-Man. Like he decided, I want to make my directorial debut. And Kevin Feige was like, well, you can have this weird werewolf thing we're doing. And Michael Giacchino was like, I love horror movies. So let's do that. So we follow Werewolf by Night. We follow Jack Russell, played by Gal Garcia Barnal, who some of you might be familiar with in things like uh, Itumama Tabien and Coco and things like that. As, again, Jack Russell, he is there as a monster hunter summoned by Ulysses Bloodstone, which is this uh, kind of seemingly enigmatic, mysterious uh, mansion owner, where he also meets uh, Elsa Bloodstone, which is Ulysses' estranged daughter, alongside uh, Verusa, played by the legendary Harriet Harris, who is a fantastic theater actor, has Ulysses' widow, Elsa's estranged mother. There's a whole family dynamic in there that Jack gets wrapped up in. And alongside Jack, Elsa, and a couple of the other monsters, we essentially follow the plot, which is that there is a bloodstone of the titular bloodstone family that can control and repel monsters. There is apparently a monster that the family has caught, and whoever slays slash captures this monster will be the next rightful owner of the uh, of the device. We then find that monster. Uh, it is the man-thing from the comics, a.k.a. in this, Ted. Uh, who is apparently an old friend of Jack's. And now we kind of run into the conflict of what is Jack and Ted's, you know, kind of mission for being there? How does Elsa throw into the whole thing with this? And where did the origins of the Bloodstone and who will be the rightful owner? Should the monsters die as a result? Is the mission kind of, you know, flawed? That whole kind of thing, along with really great horror homages. Like this is a total homage to like old 40s and 50s horror that Michael J. Chino kind of plays with. Noah, I want to turn it over to you first as the horror expert among us. How much did this resonate with you both as what a lot of people described as a complete departure for MCU content, but also just as a really great homage to, you know, old school horror? Old school horror all the way. You know, you got the black and white style. You've got, from what I remember, like really practical effects outside of uh, Man-Thing's whole visual look to him. And... Uh, just the performances. I'm glad that you mentioned that uh, Harris, who plays Verusa, is actually from the theater scene because, oh my gosh, the way that she emotes, the way that she just loses herself in the villainy that is her character. Um, I'm so happy that we had this kind of departure. I was impressed that this movie had uh, gore in it or like scare factor that even made me chill uh, while still having the look of like, this movie doesn't have really, I would say, 
grit, like grittiness to it. Like when we follow the character of Elsa Bloodstone, she does, you know, she's not a character that gets really like roughed up throughout her journey as it would maybe if this had like a, an R rating. Um, this film still does look very clean. It's um, environment's still very, uh, you know, well-crafted. Uh, I just think that when it comes to stylistic filmmaking, they hit the nail on the head. And I was really impressed with what we got because it's, like you say, a bold departure from what fans of the MCU and Disney fans as well could expect from this kind of project. Uh, we've covered both long titles on our review section. We've covered, uh, of course, short ones as well in all of our TV reviews. It is amazing that this sits at that sweet spot of 55 minutes and still delivers, in my opinion, a complete story, like a, a, a narrative told in two pieces, you know, just split right there at the half mark where we have the, you know, the quest to find out who the werewolf is. And once that is revealed to us now locking them in and playing with their transformation. To me, that's the two parts that this movie involves and it's here. It's thrilling. It is so pleasing to look at with the type of effects that they pull off uh, performances from Bernal and Donnelly. Uh, great chemistry between the two. It's just over entirely too quickly. You know, that's, that's kind of like my top, those are my top comments. I about you. I recently, not recently, like a couple of years ago, I watched the James, uh, the James Whale Frankenstein movie for the first time. And I found, obviously so, I found a lot of connections between that and this movie where I found kind of, you know, Jack Russell and Frankenstein's monster kind of having similar sense of tragedy to them. You know, there's obviously the human characters kind of correlation, but mostly I found in the sense of style. And I think the biggest thing you can weigh against this movie beyond the, you know, the kind of tight special presentation length is its style. Like, it does lean, I will admit, a bit too into the style over the substance. It's glorious to look at. There's a couple quick shots of color with the bloodstone. I remember, I don't know about you, there were a couple of people pointing on the trailer, just like, is that like ancient Scarlet Witch or something? And I was like, no, that's not what this is. Um, but it is fun. Like, it is super stylish. It's And it's actually really enjoyable. Like, as you say, like, Jack and Elsa and Ted, like, these are fun characters. Harriet Harris is great in this. Like, she's totally hamming it up as just like, Again, going back to like that gothic sense of, you know, romantic horror and that sense of build up to what the actual villainy and monstrosity of the situation actually is. At the end of the day, you're right. It's a bit too tight. It's a bit too style focused, but like I had fun with this. Like I enjoyed the characters. I want to see them back and like it ends really satisfyingly. By the time the threat is announced and the threat is within arm's reach, it's, you know, your arms are gone because it's ripped them off and it's safe <laughs> and, it, and it's over. And it's, and it's so for me, um, I, I wasn't upset about it because it did, it did play. It, it played me to the point as an audience member, I was engaged. I wasn't letting up and I was interested in how, in what the proceedings of this, um, you know, werewolf hunt was going to be, but, it, but the ending moved just as fast as that initial setup. And I think that that's what, uh, what conflicted with my, with my experience. So if that's a pacing issue, or if that's like, you know, another comment elsewhere, I still was not upset with it. When we talk about styling, I was waiting for the bloodstone because it is the only, you know, red, uh, illuminous object in the sea of black and white. That is this film. I was waiting for that to be like, significant somewhere but it, it could just be the you know the mcu's decision to continue along the lines of wandavision um and uh, i'm trying to imagine other pictures where we've only focused on the red when it's when it's available in the middle of the film it does 
introduce a character to the greater world of the MCU, but it kind of begs the question of why, at least for me, of like, oh, okay, like this is now, I guess, like canon. So, but wait, what does this mean for me? Like, what does this mean for us? Um, is this kind of just a standalone? Because I've been treated it like that, but for some reason I'm, I'm looking at it like, no, like that probably means something because it matters to a character but it doesn't matter for the Werewolf by Night story. Do you know what I mean? Kind of. And the thing is, I want to see more of these characters again, like especially where they leave off certain ones versus certain others. Like I I appreciate both of them, but you're right, because it's so condensed, we don't get a ton of time. What we get is, I think, more than enough, at least for me, I found them compelling. And again, you know, Bernal and uh, and Laura Donnelly are pretty good in this, but I do want to see where they could take those. And I'm fascinated to see in what role, because it is so distinct. That's the thing is, it's so distinctly separate from the MCU. You need to know virtually nothing about the Avengers or Iron Man or any of this. Like, just come into it as blankly as it is. And I think it's fairly enjoyable as it is. But, like, going off into, like, Moon Knight Season 2 or, like, Doctor Strange or, like, any of those other, like, supernatural sides of the MCU, where could those characters and those ideas pop up is kind of a mystery to me. And if this has to be a standalone and not connected and we never hear the name Bloodstone brought up again... I would, I don't think, I don't think audiences would be at a loss. This is an excellent flick just to take in for what it is, Halloween time horror. And then we can move on for it and hopefully expect the MCU and, uh, those involved to take more risks like this and, you know, not paying such crucial attention to how it fits into the bigger picture because this was great, even if it stood by itself. Obviously, the correct answer is it depends on the character. But, like, would you want to see, as we've been critiquing, like, no more six-episode miniseries or, like, no more over-two-hour movies? Like, would you want to see the MCU approach special presentations under an hour like this even more? Because we've heard rumors that there are more coming. Yes, yes, very fast, yes, because it's enough to show you what's necessary, I think, for a character in this in this sense. It was focused on that werewolf, which I'm like, other werewolves in the MCU, you know? <laughs> Anyways, um, but... I'm imagining how that would have looked like for other characters that maybe fans felt didn't need an entire like six episode series or, you know, uh, whose stories weren't strong enough to be introduced in that, in that method, in that format. Um, Yeah. If we got more special presentations like this, I don't think that the MCU would be at a loss. If anything, it gives reluctant viewers to even approach an MCU film the opportunity to, to go, oh, wait, I don't need to watch six series, four films to know what's what the hell's happening. I can actually just watch this one hour presentation and then kind of know what I need to know about the character. And I think that that would be amazing for new and familiar audiences. I absolutely agree. Uh, let's move on to ratings. For me, this is a very strong eight out of 10. I've been getting a lot of those recently. I, I know that something like a broken record, but I genuinely did enjoy this a lot. And for me as a horror wimp, it didn't scare me that much beyond like a couple of like freaky images here and there. And it does get into that. Like, I think there are a couple of like really cool instances of shadows where it's kind of freaky. There's the whole transformation you eventually see from Jack into the werewolf. That's a little bit, you know, uh, disconcerting, but like otherwise it's just this really cool gothic horror slash somewhat old school romantic style storyline that just really works in establishing these new characters, this new side of the MCU. And just, it's so stylish. It's so great. Michael G. Chino, by the way, does the music too. And it's fantastic. And it's just this really cool, you know, less than an hour size TV special that you might find like 10 or 20 years ago that we don't see anymore. I don't know how much it bodes for the future of the MCU, but I hope it does. It's cool. This looks different. I'm so happy it was presented to us around this time of year. Uh, I'm right there with you, Brandon, at eight and a half. I think that uh, it's a great monster tale. Uh, they take visual approaches that do feel appropriate for this uh, 
type of film. And if this film stands as an introduction to how different characters can be introduced and whether they need to be presented, you know, this way or that way, uh, I see this working for plenty of other characters, plenty of other situations. Uh, please give us more MCU special presentations. Uh, but Werewolf by Night is definitely a wreck from me. Werewolf by Night is streaming on Disney+. Plus. You can go watch it right now if you so desire. We're going to move on from there into the Cuddyverse, if you want to call it that, because it is based on, you know, Kid Cuddy's material. Uh, Kid Cuddy's been working on an animated series for a while called Intergalactic. It just came out on Netflix as a, again, a special. Uh, it's, uh, been ta- it's, it's been described as a television event. It's basically like just one long TV movie set for Netflix. Uh, we're going to talk about it because we want to, and it was cool. Noah, uh, what is this thing precisely about? What's the whole deal behind it? And uh, if you can, how much does it tie into Kid Cuddy's methodology and everything? Uh, sure thing, Brandon. Uh, Intergalactic, enter the scene. Uh, on my social feeds, I think I might have seen like an ad or two about this like Kid Cudi type of feature that was being presented on Netflix. And I was like, what the hell is this? And oh my God, another Timothy Chalamet project. <laughs> soon enough, I saw that it was stre- available for streaming on Netflix. I checked it out. I came back to Brandon and said, hey, we might want to consider covering this for the show because I, I saw it and I got to say I was impressed. I was pleased. And it's it, it would shake up the type of coverage that we've been having on the pod recently. So Intergalactic, it's got a director of Fletcher Moles, who, a uh, little fun fact, if you were a Clash of Clans fan, he directed the short titled Revenge, if you wanted to see some of his work. Um, I this believe is, uh, this is a directorial debut, right? a directorial debut at that. So I'll tell you a little bit about the story. Uh, Kid Cudi, Scott Scuddy does play the titular titular role as Jabari. Jabari is new to the city in New York and is working on developing a character of his own creation. Uh, fans of Kid Cudi in real life will be familiar with this uh, moniker, with this uh, uh, alter ego. It is Mr. Rager, okay? In the film Intergalactic, Mr. Rager is a comic book character that Jabari is presenting and working on a story for for the comic book publisher Cosmic Comics. As he adjusts to the new city life, he runs into old flame Carmen. Uh, Carmen is very involved in the social scene. She loves the spotlight. She isn't as engaged with Jabari's artistic side as, let's say, someone else. Jabari also begins to feel infatuated and pursue a romantic relationship with his neighbor, Meadow, who is a professional photographer and someone Jabari navigates carefully with to not shake up foundations new and old. Um, he's got some hilarious friends alongside him. Uh, just to mention a few of the cast members, we got Kai and Jimmy, played by Ty Dolla Sign and Timothy Chalamet, respectively. Uh, they are the homies to Jabari and kind of are like the, the, the two devils really on his shoulders throughout his journey to tell him like how he can best navigate to not you know mess up what he's working so carefully to try and build and try to flourish uh this has a this entire film is animated as we say and i gotta say it's there are pieces of it that do feel familiar i mean if you're a cinematic fan of like certain video games you might know that like it has some resemblances of like what i saw from this game called apex legends um it has kind of like this low frame rate that doesn't appear choppy, but it does give the characters a kind of like jumpy nature as they move about their world. And it's, it's unique, you know, is it exactly into the Spider-Verse? No, but it's like, it steps away from there, maybe like a cousin. Uh, but Brandon, you are a big animation fan here on the pod. Uh, how did you well, really welcome Intergalactic and uh, what was it like witnessing it for the first time? Yeah, I was just say this was done by DNEG Animation in, uh, in collaboration with Netflix and Cuddy's whole, you know, team. They've been doing, I think they won like 10 Oscars or something like that. They worked on like Interstellar and Blade Runner and all these amazing things. 
but they're, they're huge in the animation and visual effects sphere. So this was not coming from like a new crop of people. Like, although it was coming, of course, from Kid Cudi, who's kind of built himself up recently as, you know, he pops up in things like he was an X and he was in Need for Speed and he's kind of had his own film career. This was, of course, also executive produced by Kenya Barris, who did Blackish and you know a bunch of other things. So the whole team behind this is kind of fascinating. I like this. Uh, I don't love this. And I'm, I couldn't quite pinpoint why because, and some way the length, like, as you said, like, it's just over an hour and a half long. It pretty much flies by. And it gave me, just because we watched this recently, it gave me echoes of bros in that kind of, it takes the tropes of romantic comedy, it kind of does the thing, it, you know, it kind of goes through the motions, and then by the end of it, you're left either super satisfied or just wanting a bit more. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like, I think Kid Cudi and Jessica Williams have really good chemistry in this. They obviously, you know, are they a bit too alike for each other? Yes. But it also makes it really cute. And, like, there's a whole, like, montage in the middle where you get to see them, like, really developing their relationship along with uh, Karina voiced by Vanessa Hudgens who pops up in this for like a minute. Uh, she's super fun. And they, they kind of have this thing where between uh, Jabari's friends and Meadow's friends, you kind of have the different sides of the relationship kind of coming through. It doesn't let one side just kind of uh, overtake the other. It really allows them to be this really balanced couple. And it does work out through the movie. The animation as a whole is pretty good. I love the colors. I'll say that right at the back. I love the color palette of this movie. I love how it makes it look New York. Um, Actually, uh, 070 Shake, who pops up in this, like a cameo in like the art curation space that uh, Meadow works in, she has this line where she talks about like, oh, New York is often seen like palettes of gray, but it's so colorful and the people are so colorful. And if this was meant to be an homage to like, you know, Cuddy's time in New York or his connections to New York, like success, like it looks great and it looks flourishing. There's, there's this great sense of like the golds and yellows popping through, through like the pinks and the purples, which add like this great contrast to the whole thing. Uh, it's just really just beautiful to look at. Until you get to the movements of the characters and you mention the frame rates, I don't think it totally works. Uh, I, I think it works for enough. I just found it to be a little jarring as the movie went on to just kind of see like a facial movement kind of stick or like a walking motion feel like really stilted. And I think that is the point. But like, you know, talking about like Apollo 10 and a half, like a while back ago, I kind of had the same issue there where like that lack of fluidity somehow makes it less appealing. This is a bit different because we get scenes where uh, Meadow and Jabari will kind of get high and like go off into space, so to speak, and will become this uh, this intergalactic type thing. And so it provides a bit more fantastical element to it where the animation doesn't have to be so rigid, but it did draw me out of it. So I didn't hate it by any means. I did enjoy a lot of it, but I didn't find it as quite staggering as some other animationers have pointed out to be. Uh, <laughs> I forgot to mention that. Kid Cudi, with his catalog of music, is able to, uh, you know, reintroduce certain songs throughout this film as like musical numbers. And it yeah. does break up the narrative, but it, it it ties into the things that Jabari is experiencing at that time. And I found that to be really create. I found that really exciting to witness a creative really take his work and imagine, you know, if they're placed in this order, you know, what story can I tell? Not to say that that was his creative process, but just to mention that, it, you know, while there are songs that were uh, created by Cuddy for this picture, uh, it was exciting to hear familiar uh, titles from him kind of worked in uh, alongside the two dynamics that we really focus on throughout this film. I think this is a very mature, uh, yes, it's a romantic film, but also a just um, focusing on a character like Jabari, who is torn between returning to someone like Carmen, who is an, an old flame. Uh, it's, 
it's something that I think was unique for intergalactic, uh, at least balancing that along with this, you know, meeting someone new and hitting it off and realizing you have these similar interests and how can we grow together? How can we balance, um, really the, like the, the fallout. Can I say fallout? That sounds kind of like uh negative, but Dramatic. right. Okay. But how can you balance, you know, one long lasting relationship ending with the sparking up of another? And how do you do that respectfully? How do you do that? Um, just with consideration for the other people in mind, it's, it's interesting. And I just, I got to say that that's what makes me think that it was a very mature film. Uh, and I, I think that Kid Cudi as the voice behind Jabari is so, uh, delightful to hear. I think that he's incredible. Uh, the entire voice cast is just, uh, really putting in the work. I listened to this feature with headphones on and I got to say, it felt amazing. Uh, there's the, like I said, the interluding musical numbers that creep in just right. Uh, I would treat this with care and the the care that you place for a new album, because I think that that's the kind of audible attention that it requires in order to like get that experience. Um, that's the thing we should mention. There is a companion album to this. I have not listened to it. Have you? Yes. The companion album is, uh, is beautiful. It's excellent. Uh, I know somebody listening on this pod, that's your favorite artist anyways, and he's already checked it out. Um, he's a big fan of intergalactic telling me he's already watched it several times. Eli, I'm shouting you out. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think Kid Cudi created something very unique and it, it's exciting to see this as part of now his, uh, his overall creative work, uh, t- being, having Ty Dolla Sign attached as well as like Vanessa Hudgens, um, Christopher Abbott, uh, Keith David as the voice behind Mr. Ranger. Yes. Keith like David. Scenes. Dude, Keith David, he, he started talking and then I go, Oh my gosh, is he, is he like, is he the voodoo king from Princess and the Frog? Because let me tell you, like he, that's what he channeled for me. And I was just, I was right there listening to him. Uh, and, and it was incredible. I will also say just real quickly, like Jabari's character in the movie is working for like seemingly this indie comic company, which the fact that he's somehow like well off to afford that apartment is one thing. That's a whole another like realistic thing. But I do wish the movie had gone into a bit more of like the Mr. Rager side of things because we kind of get hints throughout the whole thing of like Rager being a different side of Jabari as it is to Kid Cudi in real life. Like I'm not super familiar with his music, but I know enough to know kind of the basic facets of what Mr. Rager is. And I would have loved the idea of like at one point Jabari was explaining to Meadow like, oh, what's the story behind the character? Like, what do they want me to change? Like, maybe go into the idea of, like, what media has to change because this went through a development process of being, like, a movie and then a TV series and then back to this. And I think that could have provided a bit more meta context of the whole thing. As is, it's a cool visual voice by Keith David, so I have no issue with it, but I would have liked to have seen more with it. We could have got a, like, an inner ear on, like, what those conversations are like for a new up-and-coming comic book creator that would have been so exciting and it would have been very different to place within a romantic narrative. So uh, that's an excellent mention. I'm glad that we stay on the animation corner on this pod because uh, there's been some surprising finds uh, so far. I don't think we've had that heavy of a letdown when it comes to the animation side, but oh my gosh, no, just kidding. That was real life. I was going to bring up Pinocchio. Um, oh, well, yeah. Right. Okay. Also, you, also, you didn't have to watch Hotel Transylvania 4, so. <laughs> Correct. And I didn't see three or two, and I only saw one <laughs> once. Um, my rating for Intergalactic is going to be a eight out of 10. I think as a fan of Kip Cuddy, um, and if you're not a fan of, I'm sorry, if you haven't become a fan yet of Kid Cudi, uh, this is excellent to see an artist really uh, transform some of their work and interplace it in a narrative like this. Uh, like I said, mature uh, romantic storylines, um, a 
a voice acting cast, well, you know, a Hollywood cast that comes in for voice acting uh, that should have been like kind of promoted everywhere. But I'm very surprised this went under the radar. Maybe it went under yours. It's available on Netflix. And I do recommend you check this one out. For me, this is a pretty light seven. Uh, and I feel like that's being a little bit generous because at the end of the day, this is a pretty light fare. Uh, for whatever you want to say about Werewolf by Night, I feel like it packs more into a half an hour less of screen time than this does. You could very much argue that this is, you know, just chill with the vibes, be comforted by it. And it is to an extent. Like the characters are comforting. They're a bit wish fulfillment kind of rom-com dream characters. But at the same time, they are fun. They're voiced by cool talent. And like, again, the talent behind this is interesting. Like Cuddy's mythology with Barris's writing with, you know, Fletcher Bull's directing and then everything else, you know, wrapped around it. It makes for something interesting. Again, I... I'm a sucker for anything kind of, you know, unique visually animated. And despite the comparisons to Spider-Verse, this is really interesting from a visual perspective. I'd watch it just from that level alone. As it just is, is this kind of really nice adult mature rom-com that is really dynamic and can really be something fun. I'd recommend it on that level. Just don't expect the coup de gras of everything. I don't think it really lives up to its, uh, to its potential, but who knows? We've got one final feature to cover here on the Plot Devices podcast, and that is the latest from DC. It is Dwayne Johnson's introduction into uh, the greater DC universe. It is Black Adam. Noah, the hierarchy of the DC universe is about to change forever. Let's talk about how that line made us feel at first. You know, are you a Black Adam fan? What's your familiarity with the character before we dive into this film? I mean, I love him in so much that I love Shazam. Like, I've been vocal that I love the character of Shazam before, so Black Adam has always been intertwined by this. This is not that, and it wasn't really going to be that, so I was very, yeah, I don't know. Brandon, can you share what Black Adam actually covers and what this story involves? Black Adam is directed by Jean-Michel Esser, who actually worked with The Rock before on Jungle Cruise, which I don't believe we talked about in the show. Uh, we might have. I, I can't, It was, like, early on in the podcast, so I don't think we got to I'd vote yes. Did we? I, I believe we did. Maybe we did. Huh. Okay. But yes, he worked with them on there. He's back with them in this. The Rock, however, has been attached to this character since I believe 2007, 2008. So it has been a long time coming. There's been rewrites and director's mishaps and then Shazam happened and then, you know, pandemic happened and everything happened to keep this character off screen. And now The Rock finally gets to live out this fantasy of his. Uh, we follow Teth Adam, played by uh, Johnson, who is at one point, we're led to assume the protector of the of the fictional country of Kandak, which is basically this kind of Middle Eastern, Sub-Saharan African country. We're never really specified where exactly it is, but he protects, you know, his people in the past. Something happens. He gets buried in a temple. Cut to 5,000 years later. We follow Sarah Shahi as Adriana Tomaz, who is a university professor alongside her brother Kareem. They have found the legend of the protector of of Kandak. They go to the temple, uh, but they're followed by a group of mercenaries called Inner Gang, who have basically for all intents and purposes taken over Kandak in the meantime. Through machinations and events, Black Adam is released free. We're calling him Black Adam. His name is Seth Adam. It's a whole thing of like giving him a name. We're calling him that for the sake of convenience. Black Adam is released. He doesn't really recognize his country, and he only really recognizes the use of violent force, which leads him into conflict with the JSA. We have Hawkman, played by Aldous Hodge from The Invisible Man and Straight Outta Compton. We have Cyclone, played by Quintessa Swindell. We have Noah Centineo in here as uh, Al Rothstein, a.k.a. Adam Smasher. And, of course, Pierce Brosnan as Kent Nelson, a.k.a. Dr. Fate. And then there's a whole other thing where, like, there's a crown of this material called Eternium that people have to get back and forth between places. There's a whole inner game connection of what do they want with that. And then you have, of course, Teth Adam in the center. And will he be the hero? Will he be the villain? Will he be somewhere in between? Noah, again, we didn't really know what to expect going into this movie, but does it work? You know what? Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. I think Black Adam works. I think that you sit down and you're prepared for a film about the hero who teeters on the line of morally good, morally bad, morally being gray throughout the film. Um, he takes action. Black Adam is a man of action who is willing to do, willing to skip plans, um, <laughs> willing to never use a doorway, uh, willing to <laughs> yeah. demolish a city at the expense of, you know, reclaiming it uh it's it's really it's really uh, far and few or it's really unlike the heroes the superheroes that we've seen from dc so far and i think that that's exciting i think from the beginning of this film we get a sort of archaeological expedition (laughs) um from Adriana's character, uh, Sarah Shahi, as she like is the Tomb Raider, and she goes in to retrieve the relic that is the crown. Uh, it is the plot device of this movie, and we are then led on to believe that this crown has the potential to like bring about like hell on earth. And she, through through some means, uh, realizes that she can summon Black Adam. Something like that happens at the beginning because she is the one who really calls him out. Um, from 5,000 years of solitude. And so when he enters the world, he does play up the, you know, becoming accustomed to what his city, what his um, home has become in modern day. And he immediately takes action. He wants to understand how to get this place back to the way that he remembered it. And from the beginning, Black Adam does have a sense of being in that he is set in his ways but they want to transform Black Adam into a hero for the city. And I feel like it just doesn't, it doesn't really get there for me. Like it does take a, a long journey and we do get some exciting introductions of Cyclone and um, Hawkman. And I do like that whole fight scene that they engage in. But the question of, you know, Black Adam, can you stand up and can you be a villain with us? I think wasn't, they wanted that to be the biggest point that this film sent across to audiences. Did it land for you? Because for myself, I got to say, like, I, I, by the end of it, I still was like, I don't think that you are the hero this film wants you to re- be realized as. Only barely. And I mean that in the sense that, like, if you look at it from what The Rock and, you know, his production crew and Jean-Michel are going for, you know, the, the, line of the, hero, uh, the line of the trailer of, like, heroes don't kill. Well, maybe I do. If you're going for that angle of it, of like moral ambiguity with like big bombastic action sequences and the rocks, you know, a different take on the rocks charisma, then sure, I think it works. And there have been a lot of people really liking this and I really appreciate that they do. For me, some of it works. And I think it starts with the rock himself. Like this is not like, you know, smirking, super charismatic rock that we know. Like this is a very different angle of him. I've I've liked the single of him since Snitch. So this was kind of interesting to see, you know, back from him in the fold like that. And yeah, with all the years of buildup, I was curious what approach and he makes it work. Like there is this angle of like self-detachment that we kind of see throughout later in the movie that there is a twist later on that kind of makes it feel a bit more earned. I wasn't really buying it for a long time. And then I kind of felt like, oh, that does make those scenes put into more context. Like I appreciate what he's trying to do with this. He knows what the movie is. He knows where he has to go with that. So we're kind of drawn in by that. I did also like the JSA stuff. Like we talked a couple times of the show. I've been worried about the JSA stuff. I didn't think it was going to be handled that well or it was going to be kind of this mangled. And from a writing perspective, it absolutely is. They don't care about, you know, you knowing about the characters. They just want you to know that they're cool. But at the same time, Hawkman and Dr. Fate have this really cool back and forth between one another that I wish they'd go into more. Um, Cyclone and Adam Smasher have a kind of cute back and forth chemistry between them. And I wish we got more, you know, exploring that. 
beyond that, I really didn't find that much to latch onto behind, you know, a couple of really brutal action sequences that I'll give a credit for, a couple of cool pieces of chemistry I'll give a credit for, but otherwise I didn't find that much. While the cast is entirely exciting, it is also entirely too busy. I think yes. as soon as they introduce um, the JSA, we we lose sight of um, Adriana's importance and why she is uh, really like integral to the story. I believe that had they removed several characters, the film could still very very well stand strong with Doctor Fate's inclusion and Hawkman. However, Adam Smasher and Cyclone felt like. Uh, you know, they felt secondary and and they were to the, to the overarching narrative because they, neither of them really, you know, push the story along. They, they kind of are there to add excitement, add flair. Um, but when it, when it came back to Adriana and even in the climax, you know, where to place her and her son, Amon, it's as though they went with a angle just to keep them busy. And I think that that is a very harsh, a very critical error in this story, because when we were focusing, when we were taking our eyes off of the larger threat and Black Adam's opposition to it, there was no stakes there because at this point I had dropped off on Adriana's story because now I was more so concerned with, um, Dr. Fate is a very exciting character in the story. Um, I was more concerned with like, what the plans were for Black Adam in the second half. Because like I said, the f- the first half of this film does feel a little bit more purposeful. And then it hits a point where I think they have one last plot point to juice and juice it they do for the remaining maybe like hour and 15 or so. Oh, and that plot point, it revolves around the, you know, the antagonist of the story, let's just say. And I found it incredibly lazy. Uh, I really did not care for it. I really did not care how they bring it back into the story. They kind of let it build for a while, bring in the JSA stuff, and then go back to it. It feels just really structurally inconsistent and just something that really bothered me once it came back in. I was like, you have your conflict. You have your thing. Roll with that. And then it kind of becomes, oh, yeah, we forgot we had a whole other 30 minutes of the movie that we were establishing. Dude, it's like if you want to present a villain to us and pit them against some of our heroes, don't take the mecha godzilla approach like no have us remain with our two opposing parties one line in this script just made me roll my eyes and go are you kidding me without quoting it can you say which one it is i wanted to quote it it comes from hawkman and it's when it's it is after he rescues the two falling soldiers do you remember the line oh i know what you're talking about okay I enjoy parts of it. If I go back, there are some, as Brandon says, I love that word, bombastic. That's exactly how it describes action sequences. Um, it's, it, it's amazing though to me because I found it very easy for them to, again, not, not, not having a lot of like comic book background for this specific character, found it very easy for them to place him in this country where he can, you know, really act out and demolish and do his deeds. And I'm thinking like, oh, but how come he, how come he's doing that here? Like how come his threat can then be transitioned over to a familiar setting for a lot of the American audiences? Because then I think it's easy to just throw black Adam here in this country where he demolishes it. And then you got like your, you've got your freaking filters over the film to make this city look like it's just, you know, looking entirely like something else. It's easy to place him in this location and say, here he is wrecking havoc. And we watch it and we go, Oh, this is so exciting and large. But it doesn't feel at all threatening for ours because this is not how our communities look. 
Yeah, but it's also a question that the movie doesn't want to answer. It it tries to, where it's the idea of like the JSA coming in as the colonial oppressors, which it thinks is so smart about that, but it actually doesn't dive into that. It mentions it for like two lines, and then we have to get back to the movie because the movie just really wants it to be something else, but it's like, well, I guess we should try and be a bit intelligent about it. And I'm like, that's no, like your characters are interesting enough. Like Black Adam in the comics is fascinating because of his moral ambiguity, because of that stuff. And I think The Rock truly believes that he is bringing that to the screen. And at times there are flashes of that, but for so often it becomes, we have to make this bombastic blockbuster movie and really just put the subtext aside. And there's room for that. I I, I can't explain it. Let's talk about The Sun. How did you feel about Amon? Fine in concept, but again, it, just the writing feels really precocious. And I'm forgetting who the actor's name is. Um, uh, Buddy Zimbabwe, I should say, who is, I think, good in this. Like, he's allowed to have agency. He's allowed to, you know, kind of do his own thing. I just think the writing he's given is just so, again, come on, let me at him, kind of like Scrappy-Doo fighting style. And I just really think that you could have made that character a really vocal mouthpiece for the people of this community. And he almost is. But I think it really just falters in giving him the amount of agency that he deserves. He's creating taglines. He's creating, sorry. Um, yeah, I think they're called taglines. Uh, for, he's creating catchphrases for Black Adam in the same way that when you watch Shazam, Billy's friend is helping him like really buff up his, um, hero persona. And I got a little bit of that from Amon in the beginning. And I'm like, Oh shit, like this is, this is working. And I, I was a fan, um, because of how interested in this hero like image that he was. After all, his first instance meeting Black Adam is having all of his DC, uh, all of his like Justice League merch just being demolished, you know? Can we talk about that? How he has Wonder Woman and Superman comics in his room? He has Aquaman posters straight up on his wall and uh, he feels no remorse when um, Black Adam wakes up and just starts like destroying everything. This man does not use a door. He breaks walls. He, he is the window into your home. There is one funny joke with that, where is um, where Doctor Kent's just like, I assume they didn't have doors in Conduct, and he go- and uh, Adam goes like, Yeah, of course we. That's how they walked around. Um, they do play with like, I, I like how they play with s- sarcasm for Black Adam. That worked for yes. me. Now, what what comedic appeal did not work, dude? A friend said this, and I agree with them. Tell me that they didn't try to make Adam Deadpool. Not only did they try to make him look like him, they try to make him act like him. That's what I read. Adam Smasher. Adam Smasher. My apologies. Is Adam his dad or his like his uncle? It's complicated. Is it that kind of thing? Because I'm like, wait, ugh, I already focused on a hero who can grow, and he's like the, but he's like the second, he's the successor of the the name, and now here's another one. Oh, oh I will, I will totally concede that, like in the mask, and I think Noah Centineo is fine in this. Like, I'm not going to yes. be like, ah, Noah Centineo, he's fine in this. But like in the mask, you're right. It's either the script is asking him to be, or he is just acting akin to Deadpool. Dr. Fate, how do they do him justice here? Yeah, actually, I don't have any issues with Dr. Fate. Like, Pierce Brosnan is not phoning it in here. He's quite good in this. He gets maybe some of the film's best moments of, like, dry humor. I wish they had played up the element of, like, you know, in the comics and in here as well, Dr. Fate has an extended lifespan, and I wish they had gone to the idea of, like, both Kent and Teth as, like, people out of time and what that means for them as men, as, you know, as fathers of, you know, what that means to them as characters. I think you could have done something with that, but as just the pure character on screen, plus like the visual component. Yeah. I thought they did Dr. Fate great. He looked freaking cool. Dr. Fates, when he's in, when he's involved in, in the action. Oh, I'm, I'm watching him. I'm like, yeah. Oh my gosh, look at the, they are some familiar others. Dude. I was like, I, I need to go play injustice again because yeah, Dr. Fate <laughs> is so exciting. 
spoiler alert. So if you want to skip ahead like 15 seconds, several, well, honestly, this is the end of the episode. Thank you for listening to Plot Devices. Brandon, spoiler territory. Here we go. We have Amanda Waller uh, <laughs> sending over a drone to speak to Black Adam and letting him know, hello, yes, we see you. We know what you're doing. Keep it locked up. Keep it within your perimeter. Because as soon as you exit, we will have a threat that can face off against you. To which Black Adam responds, nothing on this world can oppose me. To which Amanda Waller says, well, we do have metahumans not from planet Earth who can. And Brandon, who walks on screen? Henry Cavill as Superman is back. After six years, he's here. He's here. Henry Cavill returns as the Man of Steel, looking still so good in that suit. Um, It looks like they, I mean, at least for the cameo appearance, it looks like they went back to like Superman's traditional colors, right? Because Man of Steel's always been like very dark, uh, almost like the bloodish kind of red with blues. But here I found them to take actually bold approaches with how his costume looks, as well as even his hair. I loved this Superman look. Does this mean that we're going to get Henry Cavill um, facing off against uh, Dwayne Johnson with Superman versus Black Adam? I don't know, because do they write the lines to kind of just fill the air as... um Oh, come on. They're not coming back to me. Where, how do they go? Oh, we should talk. Yeah, let's have a conversation. You know, dude, what does this mean? What kind of what kind of early 2000s, like, <laughs> just tease for a sequel are we doing here? We've gone way too long with this, so I'll keep this as brief as I can. I am happy for Henry Cavill. I have always loved Henry Cavill as Superman. I've always wanted to see him back as Superman. I am happy for the fans who got this. I am happy for, you know, the people who want to see Superman on screen. And if we do get a Superman versus Black Adam movie, you know, maybe it'll not be the most re- well-written movie, but it'll certainly be cool. That being said, screw the marketing department for spoiling this in advance for The Rock and the cast going on press tours and saying, you better stay around for the credits because that's going to be one of our big selling points in this movie. And screw the people online who leaked it early. I'm so mad about this. I'm so mad I knew about this in advance. And I'm mad that Warner Brothers press department made that a thing, that somehow the post-credit scene was going to be the thing that was going to drag people to movies. There is such a thing of baggage to unravel about there that we just don't have time to get into, but it makes me fume. Oh, thank you, Brandon. Why don't you lead our uh, charge into ratings territory now that we've left our spoiler land? Gladly. Uh, For me, this is a very strong five. Um, I had enough fun with it. I think the action sequences are mostly well done. The Rock is giving his one of his more interesting performances. And again, the JSA stuff leads to a lot of interesting doors and has a lot of fun characters and maybe has some good substance if you look at it okay. That being said, the writing of this movie is a mess at best and just really, really undercooked at worst. I really did not care for it as nearly as much as I should. I'm glad that people are in some way or another. But for me, for a movie that is trying to address, you know, good versus evil morality, imperialism, you know, that these characters could easily address is just boiled down to a couple lines because we need to get to a fight scene because it's The Rock. And that really disappointed me. And I think for a character like Black Adam, who is so fascinating and has so much years and decades of source material, it's disappointing to see. I'm not saying I wouldn't see the character back on screen. You know, if we do get more properties with this, great. But again, this is fairly disappointing from just a standalone movie perspective. It This should not have taken 16 years or however long it did to make. And I think you could have done better with this. I guess I might bump it up a little higher. I'm going to be at five and a half out of 10 for this film. Yeah. 
it is watchable. Like if you start this film, you have a sense of joy. You have a sense of hilarity because it feels like a, a great big action flick with superhero at the, at the center. And that's exciting. That's, um, that's like I said, something we know and we know kind of like what tricks that the film may pull to keep us engaged. Um, it introduces a, an opposing force early on. We have, um, we never really go into what his powers actually are, but that being said, once it reaches maybe like 45 minutes in, that's when my eyes started to wander off of Black Adam because I thought like, what else can I tether myself to? Because I'm not going anywhere with here. Like I'm not, this film isn't moving. And if it is, it is begrudgingly slow. Much of the plot that occurs in the second half could have been, I think, trunked down into half the screen time. I wish it paid more attention to its characters that were central to the story and not spent so much time just on you know, what would be an exciting visual and what would, you know, what would fit in the trailers? Because when it comes to, um, like I said, our additional characters, they are the ones who filled the TV spots where I think it could have been better suited to have it focus on Black Adam, not just when he uses his powers, but that sense of divide that he has as a character with his moral standing that I see a, a more uh, distinguished film in that one, but entertaining I found the experience in the theaters to be well worth the watch. Uh, when it comes to streaming, someday I will be putting on that fight scene between uh, involving uh, Hawkman, Dr. Fate, Adam Smasher, all of the characters that you see on the title poster, uh, because that, I think, is one of the film's high points. Uh, the very end of the film, it gets shaky. Um, if you find that you are a fan once the film closes... I'm going to say it again. We invite you to reach out and we can uh, have some differing opinions and we can have uh, constructive criticism presented on this podcast. But five and a half out of 10 for me for Black Adam. Yeah, I, th- I think it's split amongst critics right now. I think audience is liking it okay. Uh, it is in theaters right now. It'll probably be on uh, HBO Max within maybe by the end of the year, actually. Um, but yeah, if you are interested, let us know online and you know take it for what it is. And that'll do it for episode 38 of Plot Devices. Thank you all so much for tuning in once again. While we've got you here, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, RSS feed, at Plot Devices. Go follow us to listen to the shows there every other week, plus other stuff that we got in the works. And leave us a review there, uh, review or a rating, depending on what the service is. It helps us, you know, boost the algorithm and just lets us know, you know, what we're doing different or what we should be doing different. If you want to follow us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, at Plot Devices Pod, and our uh, TikTok page is Plot Devices Podcast. My co-host Noah Guzman is right over there on the Zoom screen with me. Noah, what do you got going on in your life? What have you been watching, enjoying, and uh, what should uh, people know about? Currently, I am reading this uh, fiction story titled Tender is the Flesh. It's about cannibalism. What happens if a disease affects all of these animals that we can no longer eat? And now we are eating each other. Oh, my gosh. Perfect book for scary time. Um, but I'm busying myself with that. Uh, I am also watching... Uh, Mike Flanagan's new series, The Midnight Club. Uh, we might have some exciting coverage coming at you before this spooky season is up, but uh, that is happening down the line. You can follow me on Twitter at Noah's Plotting. Um, engage with me about your favorite horror flicks, about your upcoming excitements for TV and movies, and I will respond to you, okay? And you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at TheMovieKing45. That's Twitter and Instagram at TheMovieKing45. Follow my band at Cablebox underscore music. We have a gig coming up uh, October 29th at the Trunk Space in Phoenix, Arizona. It'll be our fun Halloween show. Uh, costumes are encouraged. Uh, so come and, you know, chill and hang out with us if you want. Uh, our debut single, Wish, is also available on all audio platforms. And just, again, Plot Devices Pod, Twitter, Instagram, all the things will be in the description as well. But that being said, for myself, from Noah Guzman, this has been Plot Devices Episode 38. I'll look at you guys next time. Bye.